Originally, when I planned this series on Romans, I wasn't going to use this scripture from Romans 5 this week. Originally, uh, I was going to focus on a passage in this letter, which is, is famous slash infamous. Um, in, in a sentence, focus particularly on a sentence that Paul uses that has troubled uh, readers for centuries and actually has sadly been used by some preachers to try to terrify their congregants. Uh, the quote itself is uh, from Romans chapter 3, verses 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This covers everyone. All, no exceptions. Uh, all have sinned, covers the past. Uh, and fall short, covers the present. We looked at a similar passage this uh, last week, and I said in last week's sermon that this is a biblical truth that is vital for us to acknowledge individually in order for every person uh, to fully appreciate both our need for saving and our inability to provide salvation for ourselves. But I'm beginning to understand more and more that the Christian church has emphasized this truth to the point of distortion. We have focused so much on sinfulness and judgment that we've made it seem as if that's God's primary focus. We've made God out to be this angry autocrat that just sits on a throne devising different ways of punishing uh, those who disobey God's commandments. But I'm realizing more and more all the time that this is not only not true, it's the exact opposite, the exact opposite of who God is. Rather than inflict punishment, God lavishes us with gifts. And rather than God being an angry autocrat, God is a loving parent or grandparent who longs for us to know how much we are loved. We see that revealed in this morning's text in the wealth of gifts that we receive from God in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul begins this portion of the letter, chapter 5, by reminding us, uh, but by reminding his readers of the primary truth and the primary gift that leads to all that follows. That first line, therefore, since we have been justified through faith. In the first several chapters of this letter, Paul had written very persuasively, in fact, perhaps too persuasively, that all human beings have turned our backs on God, at least at some point in our lives, and that as a whole, we have chosen most often to go our own way, sort of the toddler, I can do it myself approach. 
And then Paul went on to write that God's response to centuries of this, I can do it myself, uh, was to say, fine, do it yourself. See how that goes for you. And let us suffer the consequence of our actions. For Paul, that is the essence of the wrath that we receive for our sinfulness. God doesn't inflict punishment on us. That's why I was so, I, I, it bothers me so much that the NIV focused and put that extra word in there, God's wrath, when it's, it's the wrath that we receive, as Paul says, because God allows us to suffer the consequences of the choices that we make. But even after all of that, God provides a way of reconciliation in Jesus, the anointed one of God. As human beings, as, excuse me, as a human being, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a life in full communion with God, following the ways of God from birth to death. Then, because Jesus was also immortal God in human flesh, he took the worst consequence of our sinfulness and our actions, death, and conquered even that, rising to new life, the eternal life of God. Just before, so this is what Paul has been establishing in the letter so far. So just before our text for this morning, Paul has explained that this same pathway to life with God that Jesus went on is now open to all human beings by being incorporated into Jesus, into his life, the anointed one. By living a, a life completely devoted to God, Jesus set things right with God for all human beings. That's what being righteous is, is being set right with God. Jesus did that for all human beings, and our part is simply to understand this and accept it. And as soon as we understand it, we realize it's already been done for us. Ours is simply to understand it and accept it. And that's what Paul means in this opening line about saying that we have been justified by faith. Therefore, uh, since we have been justified through faith, since our relationship with God has been completely set right because of the faithfulness of God to Jesus, excuse me, that buzz started to... Um, I'll try to fix that in a little bit. But um, our relationship with God has been completely set right because of the faithfulness to God of Jesus in the life that he had lived. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That is the first and the foundational gift from God to us. And then we just keep opening gifts from there. Uh, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace through with God. This is a deep 
soul-filling peace because we know that we are good with God and good with all that God has created. And then Paul continues. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, and notice he uses this a couple of times, through whom, not through through whose actions or through whose uh, uh, program we get set right. But in Jesus, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul is saying that we can enter into the presence of God anytime without hesitation, again, because we have been set right with God. In fact, he says, uh, we're, we're actually already continually standing in this grace, this gracious presence of God because of Jesus because of God's free gift to us. That is grace, a free gift. And even when we think about the future, we can anticipate more gifts. So we've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through whom we stand uh, by faith in his grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Dale Bruner, who was a longtime uh, professor at Whitworth College and a dear human being, um, he says this, he, he sums up these gifts beautifully. Through the living Lord Jesus Christ, who placed and is ever placing the divine righteousness as pure gift into nothing more deserving than our primitive hands and believing hearts, we now have for the rest of our lives unblocked access into the very presence of the living God in perfect peace. Astonishing. And we may even, in Paul's own word here, stand there presently in God's peace and not just cringe there in our unworthiness. There's even more. We can heartily revel, he uses that rather than rejoice, but we can heartily re revel, rejoice in our expectation of a grand new future as well. We revel in our hope of one day actually experiencing the very glory of God. Instead of being overwhelmed by the fear of our future death, we can be overwhelmed by the fact that in our most climactic future experience at our death or at Christ's return, we will actually be given a share in the very glory of the presence of the God who gave us his love when he gave us himself in his Christ. What a future. The question then becomes, why? Why did God do this? Why would God do this? Why does God do this? Why would God lavish such phenomenal gifts on anyone, let alone us. Paul makes it crystal clear. Why? Because God loves us. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That 
again, is a, a reminder that we didn't, we didn't do anything to deserve this. <clears throat> we, were, we were still weak and powerless, and we were ungodly. We, we weren't living as God wanted us to live. But Paul continues, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a really good person, maybe someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates their own love for us in this. Again, God demonstrates their love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let that sink in. God loved us to this unfathomable degree, even when we were being horrible. Episcopalian priest and theologian uh, Fleming Rutledge picks up on a small but important word. She writes, notice that little word yet or still. While we were still sinners, he died for us. That word carries a lot of freight. It means that we don't, or excuse me, it means that we hadn't made any progress toward being sinless. Have you got that? A lot of religion is based on the idea that people can make progress towards being sinless. Paul says Christ died for his enemies. Nothing is said about repentance. Nothing is said about remorse. Repentance is not the condition for our restoration. Remorse and breast beating are not the conditions for our restoration. They are the consequences. They are our responses to the good news. The only thing responsible for our restoration is God's deep love for us. And this is the same truth that we heard revealed from Jesus himself in our uh, gospel reading from John. Whoever, whoever was the first one who decided that, okay, I'm going to pick one verse to show at NFL games in the camera background, John 3.16, they got it right. For God so loved the world that God gave their only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. And a lot of people think, and I have find it hard sometimes not to think this myself, but a lot of people think that God originally was this angry autocrat and that uh, God only changed because of Jesus' action of sacrifice. But our Hebrew First Testament reading utterly shames that idea. Again, that wonderful part about how when Israel was only a child, I loved him, I called out, called him out of Egypt, but then when others called him, he went to them. He ran off and left me. He worshiped these other gods, still I stuck with them. I rescued him from human bondage, but he never acknowledged my help, never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon that I lifted him like a baby to my cheek, that I bent down to feed him. And now he wants to go back to Egypt, all that stuff, and, and goes on to say, I can't, uh, 
how can I leave my child? How can I, I turn my back? I can't even bear to think such sides. My insides churn in protest. And so I'm not going to act on anger. I'm going to continue to reach out in love. Again, like I was saying uh, in the shorter version of this, being a grandpa has just brought this home to me so much. This overwhelming love and, and tenderness that I feel for this little baby just fills my heart. And this is the way that God loves us. This is God saying this. This is God telling us, this is the way I love you. Like a parent, like a grandparent loves a, the baby. Again, doesn't, that hasn't done anything to deserve it other than exist. And that's enough. This is the way God loves us, always has, and always will. I love the way William Barclay expresses this truth. Jesus did not come to change God's attitude. Jesus came to show God's attitude to men and women. To show what God's attitude to men and women is and always was. Jesus came to prove unanswerably to men and women that God is love. And the way that we know this, the way that we experience this, is through one more gift that God has given to us in love. And that is verse 5. That's the gospel passage. Here we are. God has poured out their love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom God has given us. God has poured that love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Again, Dale Bruner captures the essential beauty of this revelation. This is God's most personal internal gift of himself inside our very lives. Believers in Jesus Christ are not only given the gift of a perfectly right relationship with the great God above us, but we are also given the gift of God's very presence in the Holy Spirit within us. And again, God gifts this gift out of love for us, that we will literally be filled with God's love for us. Now, I know it's hard for many of us to believe that this is true. Most of us, somewhere along the line, have been told by someone that we aren't lovable. And that's a lie. That's not true. We are lovable because God loves us. And God lavishes us with gifts in our lives in order that we will know that this is true. An author I follow on uh, social media, Dante Stewart, this week tweeted, I was reading in the Gospels, God didn't send his son to judge the world. Jesus says, but to save it through Jesus. I think he might have been reading John 3.16. 
I was reading through the Gospels, and I, and I saw that uh, God sent the, Jesus not to judge, but to, to love us and save us. Then he quotes another great author and theologian. James Baldwin was right. Salvation is not flight from the wrath of God. It's accepting and reciprocating the love of God. Salvation is not flight from the wrath of God. It is accepting and reciprocating the love of God. And then Stuart closes with this profound biblical truth. If it ain't love, it ain't God. Amen.